Good morning. If you're not normally here, if you're new, uh, typically Steve Brandon stands here and he preaches as he pastors normally. But he and his family are on a well-deserved vacation. And so some of us are, are filling in for him. Um, you all, if you're new here, you also wouldn't realize what a, a new sanctuary we have. All new chairs, carpeting, paint, the whole image is, has been redone. And so you all befit it very well. I recently learned that there's a there's kind of a church rule. Um, and the church rule says this, that when the pastor's away, people don't show up. <laughs> Obviously, you guys didn't get the message. I had to be here. I mean, my wife isn't even here. Actually, she's traveling, taking my daughter to camp. But... Uh, I guess ignorance is bliss in some of these some of these strange rules we have, but it raises this popularity question uh, in life, really. Uh, prominence and, and popularity is something that's hard to get away from. I'm sure most of you are well aware of the political situation with an election year coming. We have all these candidates, and they just come out of the woodwork, and they all want to be most popular. And so they're going to tell you whatever they can, uh, to become popular. But it's not just politics, it's sports, it's, uh, it's computers, computer brands. Remember Mac versus PC? Okay, some of you are kind of young, but that used to be a thing. And also even, even church movements, frankly. Um, churches pursue popularity. Preachers pursue popularity too. It's a thing. And something that will probably only be healed uh, when we just just worship Jesus only. And as we shall see this morning, uh, there's actually a popularity contest in the Bible, probably there to drive us to that very question of to whom should we be most devoted. I appreciate what Darren said last week. He brought up the issue of um, of genre, what type of what type of text are we reading here? Uh, you were in the Old Testament in Numbers, and he found there was actually, if you read it carefully, it's funny. There was humor there. And you have to look at text in a special way to, to find that. Before that, it was um, Troy. Troy was preaching from an epistle, a letter to the Ephesians. It wasn't very funny. It was different, different kind of text. Before that, it was Ryan Brown in Psalm 34. That's poetry. And so all these are different. This morning we'll be in something still different, and that is uh, gospel. Gospel is its own type of genre. It has a variety of different things. And we will, we will see what they are. But a gospel is it's not just a history. It's a theologically driven biography of Jesus. And in the case of John's gospel, which I will call the fourth gospel, he actually just tells us straight out what his mission is, what his drive is. It's in chapter 20. And if you need a Bible, there's one in the 
chair in front of you in the rack there. And it would be on page 907. John 20, verse 31. Speaking of all the signs that Jesus did, it says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's telling us that every chapter, every little section, is connected to that idea. That by believing, you may have life in his name. And so the author wants to drive us toward this an ultimatum, a final statement of understanding about life. An ultimatum is um, maybe some, it's a big word for some of the small people. Ultimatum is something like when your mom and dad say, make your bed or else. I think that conveys it. It's an ultimatum that if you don't, there's going to be trouble. So you may notice that I'll be referring to um, the author as opposed to John. Because in our, in our text today, there's a, a character called John, and he's not the author. And so I'll talk about the author, and I'll talk about John. That's, that's why I'm making that distinction. We're going to look at sort of a neglected passage, though. It's in John chapter 3. Now, in a group like this, if we talk about John chapter 3, pretty much people know what John chapter 3 is about. I mean, the most famous verse in all 66 books of the Bible is in John chapter 3. It's at probably every football game and basketball game. Uh, Tim Tebow, I think, puts it right on his, his eyes, right? That would be John chapter 3, verse... 16, of course. And we, we could probably all say it. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave us all. In him, not perish, not everlasting life. Exactly. Very well known. John chapter 3. Uh, John chapter 4, you know about too. Because Steve just preached from it some weeks ago. John 4 is about the woman at the well. Yeah. Uh, But what goes on in between John 3, Nicodemus, John 3.16, and John 4, the woman at the well, is not so well, not so popular. That's our text for today. And that starts a couple pages back, on page 888, if you need that, John 3. The first part of it is actually a story, and so it's short enough and unfamiliar enough, I'll just read it. And then we'll come back and, and bring out some points of, of interest. We'll start at verse 22. Read the end of the chapter. John three twenty-two. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, 
because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not been yet put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, who, he who was with us, with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So our text, we could break it into roughly two sections. The first is uh, a contest for popularity. And after that, there'll be some commentary on popularity. In verse 22, we get the setting. What's going on? Where are we? And Jesus and his disciples, after dealing with Nicodemus in chapter 3 earlier, they, they go out into the countryside and they're baptizing. A statement of, of commitment that people are making. But in verse 23, it says, John also was baptizing. So the author is juxtaposing these in the story for a reason. Jesus is baptism. Oh, John is also baptizing. I wonder, I wonder who's baptizing more. I wonder who's got the bigger church. Whose VBS is bigger? The popularity thing is built into this. You can sense it coming. The author tells us that John had not yet been put in prison because for the, the, the readers, this is many years after, they knew what happened to John. And so this is taking place before his imprisonment and ultimate death. So we move from this setting to the conflict. In verse 25, it says that there a discussion arose. The translations vary. You may have something like uh, a dispute arose, a debate arose, or an argument arose. The context clearly pushes the, the sense that direction because it leads to a, a ministry comparison a ministry competition between Jesus and John. And so the spirit of jealousy is there. 
who's got the bigger Bible study? And so in verse 26, this, this, this spirit of jealousy says, we have to, let's go check with John. Let's go check with the rabbi. I mean, he's got to go do something about this. We are the baptizers. And so he goes, and listen to what they say. They say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness? Look, he is baptizing, and all are flocking to him. Who are they talking about? They didn't even name him, did they? Their jealousy is there. I mean, this is, this is kind of like boxing language. Hey, Muggsy, you, know, you can go 10 rounds with this guy. You can take him. They want him to win. And we're 2,000 years after this. Think about how ridiculous it is. Who, who's their competition? We're going to go up against Jesus. Well, that's kind of funny. As if Jesus is in the way of our ministry. It seems kind of ludicrous right now. But at the moment, they were, this is, don't laugh too hard because this is a picture of us as well. We want to be part of the biggest thing. And sometimes we see something bigger, we go join that. Because prominence and popularity is just part of, frankly, what we enjoy. But it's definitely not ministry-mindedness. It's like the politicians always chasing those polling numbers. Oh, we're down here. We have to go do that. Huh. And this, this tracing the baptism numbers is, is not just here. Look down in chapter 4, verse 1. Steve was here a few weeks back. Uh, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... It's not only the disciples who are tracking this. The government, the, the leadership was. Culture was. They were watching this. So it's a real thing. This competition, this need for popularity. So the question here is, they've had all this jealousy built up. They've chased after John and told him what they think about this guy who's competing with them, what is John going to say? And John's answer is tremendous. If you advance to the next slide, please. Um, John's answer is what I would call a one, two, three, therefore. He really gives them a thorough, clear answer. His first point, number one, a person cannot receive anything unless God gives it to him. He's saying that God decides my place. God assigns me my ministry. He gave Jesus his ministry. I have mine. Point one. God assigns it. Number two. John doubles down. In chapter one, he had already told them so many things about Jesus and who he was. He says, I am not the Christ. He is. He's already referred to him as the Lamb of God, the one who would come, the one who is not worthy, to, whose shoes wasn't worthy to untie. He doesn't back up. He's, he's not the Christ. I'm sent before him, but he is the one. He's very happy to play the second fiddle. 
our son is a, a professional cellist, and um, when he was learning to play cello, he played second cello to a lot of people. I'm sure you can relate to some of this. If you play in a, an orchestra, they, they line you up, and the first chair is, is the primary person. And there's a second chair, and, and so forth. Well, do you know what your job is if you, if you sit second chair? What is it? You turn pages. You're the page turner. Play, 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 play. Turn page for you. Play, 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 play. Turn page for you. That's your job. Playing second fiddle. You're a page turner. John was perfectly happy being the page turner. Number three, he uses this best man analogy. He, goes, he says, like in a wedding, it's the bride, the groom who has the bride, the best man, he's just over there. Is the best man in the limelight? Aside some, for some funny speech later. No. It's the bride and the bridegroom. They get all the light, all the fanfare. It's all about them. The best man, he's there just to save the day, to show, to, in my case, to get my ring to the wedding, to do whatever's needed, to support, to point toward, to just look, to, to hear those vows. He rejoices to hear the bridegroom speak. He doesn't get, a, get that. So John says, God decides, I've already told you I'm not the Christ. And the third thing is this best man analogy. He does not have the center stage. He's the forerunner, yes. He's the prophet, yes. He's this arrow pointing to Jesus, but he is not Jesus. He is not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. And that he makes clear. Therefore, one, two, three, therefore, the very thing that these people think I should be envy about is the thing that brings me joy. That's what John's saying. Therefore, this joy of mine to just witness Jesus is now complete. In fact, it's he who must increase. I must decrease. He's not seeking popularity. He's not seeking prominence. And that's so true for many things that we do. The tip of, of any real ministry has a negative aspect. Not you. If you are not able to get out of the way, I think you're going to have a hard time ministering at all. John sure understood that. Not I, but he. And so this, this thing that John says here is just fantastic. It's the centerpiece of this whole argument. It's no wonder why Jesus called John the greatest prophet. And by the way, these are John's last words. We don't hear from him after this. And so before we move on in the text, it, it might be good to think about how John really exemplifies uh, godly ambition. Because ambition can be very ungodly. Turn on a TV and you'll see it everywhere. But John exhibits this godly ambition. And so we, could, we should think about that. Let's apply these, the one, two, three, therefore, to your own life. 
God appoints you your place in life. God appoints you your ministry. You okay with that? Are you content? Can you double down and say, I know I'm not that other person. I am who I am. Number three, are you okay? Can you understand that it's not always your time to be in the limelight? Especially in ministry. Ministry is about making Jesus famous. Not you and me. It's all about him. And that truly is what brings joy. We are all little arrows pointing to Jesus. Each one of us. You've probably heard that little ditty about joy. One, two, three. J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. That's how you have joy. Mix that up at all, and you probably will not. I have a taste of this in my own life. I've been a... My day job, I'm an engineer, and I work with a group of engineers. And after 18 years, now there's a a person is my boss very recently. And this person is 20 years my junior. And I discipled him. He's my boss. He's been appointed that role. I have my role. And that's just great. But it's an exercise to do that. It's not natural. There's temptations to to go after the prominence, to go after popularity. It's not natural. But God helps us, and we are able to see other people increase. And you may have to decrease to make that happen. So first we see this contest for popularity. And even though pressed hard for it, John does not take the bait. Next, we'll see that there's uh, some commentary on this popularity. It's not just a vote where everybody gets it. But our author wants to make sure that you believe it. And so he, he adds a lot of thrust to what John has already said. I mean, is John right? Maybe John's just a little weird. I mean, he did have a strange diet and wardrobe, Remember? How do we know that his attitude is valid? Well, that's exactly what the author does in this next little paragraph. Bring up the next slide. It's presented somewhat artistically, concentrically. And so I put it out this way on the slide for you. He says, note the references, he who comes from above is above all, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. When John refers to Jesus and he's pointing to him as the Messiah, he's not saying, he's a little bit better than I am. He's got a few more disciples. He's made a few more baptisms. Although he didn't baptize Chapter 4, verse 2 tells us that the disciples did. He's saying that Jesus is in a completely different class. There is no competition. 
It's completely separate. He is from above. He is from heaven. And therefore, he is above all. It's a category difference, not just a subtle comparison. 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He's saying you can't speak clearly about heaven unless you have been there. Guess what? Jesus has been there. Anybody competing with that? Yet no one receives his testimony. You're familiar with John chapter 1? That's a real echo from 1, verse 11 and 12. He came into his own, but his own received him not. No one receives his testimony, even though he's come from heaven. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. So whoever does receive this, they get the testimony that is from heaven, that is from God, and they know that God is true. For whom he, whom God sent, has sent, utters the words of God. For he gives a spirit without measure. Pause here. We've been talking about somebody all this time. And in the text it says, he who, he bears, he who, whoever, for, for he, he. It's, 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 it's wanting us to come up with the name. Who's he talking about exactly? It just asks us to, 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 to think about it. And he doesn't come up with it until the very last. Verse 35, for the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Who is it? It's the Son. It's Jesus. So right in the middle of this, the focus is about receiving that testimony. Whose testimony? The testimony of the Son whom the Father has sent. It's fantastic. And so our author is just a master at expressing these things. So our story has come to this point, and it just builds tension right up to the very end here. First, we're set in the context of these over-eager followers, and they have some jealousy issues over baptism. The dispute arises, and there's competition. The disciples urge John to do something, to compete with Jesus, though they won't name him. And yet John, with marvelous humility, not only declines to compete, but proclaims his joy that Jesus is gaining followers. He must increase. The dialogue ended, and now the author proceeds to this masterfully poetic way of commenting on the argument with a logical and a theological effort that's far beyond the popularity contest. It brings it to this final ultimatum of whoever's. The next slide, please. The ultimatum is whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He introduced the Son as the answer, the one we want to know about. 
And here is the ultimatum. Notice it's the present tense. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. It's not some future thing. You don't get eternal life after you die. It's now. I've met some people who say, well, I've always believed. Nobody has always believed. I was driving home from the airport a week or two ago with a coworker, and I asked him about his church, and he's active in his church. And we talked about these things, and I just wasn't satisfied with what I was hearing about how, what his relationship really was. And so I finally had to just make it very blunt. I said, we're going 70 miles an hour on I-90. If we hit a head-on, we die instantly. How confident are you of heaven? He said, oh, I've really never thought of it quite like that. Um, I guess I'd say 75%. Not 100%. Now, this author writes in a letter, 1 John chapter 5, we won't go there, but he answers this question. But just right here in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has, 100%, has eternal life. Not 75%, not uncertain, it's a sure thing. Whoever does not obey the Son, he switches the words there. You'd think it'd be a, a logical tautology. One and the other the same. But he says, does not obey the Son, shall not see life. This tosses us back to verse 18, if we had gone through chapter 3 earlier. Verse 18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. This is something that we have to come to grips with, because it's it's a sober reality that all people, the default the normal state of people is under the wrath of God. Why is that? Well, because all have sinned. The wages of sin is death. Um, it is appointed to men once to die, and then the judgment. And this is that judgment. They're under the wrath of God. In one sense, you can say, well, does someone go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus? Yeah, not, not, not exactly. I mean, sort of. People are under judgment, the wrath of God, because they sin. They can be saved by believing in the Son. But the wrath of God remains on him. It's a sober reality that we all need to really embrace, perhaps a little more firmly. But it's an ultimatum. There aren't other options, other choices. There's no middle. The ultimatum is, is a statement of terms, the rejection of which will result in a breakdown of relations. That's your dictionary definition. An ultimatum. There's only two conditions. And this text is driving us to this ultimatum. We've gone from uh, quibbling about counting baptisms to hearing the single voice from above who bears witness to what he has seen and heard. 
It takes us from these disputes over purification and baptism to, to the only testimony that really matters from him who came from heaven, from popularity contest where anybody gets to say what they want to one ultimatum, no options. Does this make sense? And please don't be desensitized to this idea of the ultimatum because sometimes it gets abused. Like when politicians want to force uh, their agenda, they'll use something, it's a fallacy, it's called the, the, the law of the excluded middle. They won't let you have other options. They'll say, uh, it was in the headlines recently, um, believe in my policy or everyone dies in 12 years. Yeah, I, th- I think there's got to be another option. Can you tell us more? <laughs> but that's a fallacy. There, but in this, this really is an ultimatum. It's not like that. There's only two options to believe and receive eternal life. Otherwise, the wrath of God remains on you. You must trust in Jesus to be forgiven. I'd like to illustrate this a little further with my my brother-in-law, Gordy. I got to visit with him two weeks ago in Connecticut. And Frankly, I would have put him in that category of um, unlikely converts that Steve was talking about. Uh, he's married to my sister, clearly, but unfortunately, and to my personal dismay, uh, their marriage is um, in difficult waters, and it may not survive. So it's put my brother-in-law in a, a very low place in life. They've been, they've been separated, and so he went back to California, where his family's from, and he visited with his sister, who's married to uh, a man who pastors at an evangelical church. And so he got some help from them, went to church, and went into his brother-in-law's study with a Bible for a couple hours and wrestled with reality, with this ultimatum. And I can tell you today... Very clearly, he is a believer. Um, God has saved him. He came to realize that his, his nominal attendance in church and stuff like that was, was not what God wanted. God wanted every hour of his life, his whole heart, fully repented. And it's amazing to talk to him because he is so certain. And he... His situation is so painful. But he says, I'd rather have what I have now with my sins forgiven, with peace with God, than be back and have my marriage kind of getting along and sort of, and to be under the wrath of God. It's really fun to talk to him. He can't help but talk about it. He's so excited. He has no doubt. He understands this ultimatum. In fact, he would say that he would question the salvation of anyone who's not concerned about the salvation of others. That's a bold statement. But he gets the ultimatum. 
He's thinking about those upon whom the wrath of God remains. Does that bother you? Does that bother me? It should motivate us. We too easily get complacent about these things. Life happens and we get so distracted about other things that this gets forgotten. And so it's encouraging to hear about the Red Lake Nations trip and people going overseas and these sorts of things to, to remind us to go, well, that's what's really important. I don't just go to the J-O-B to make money to go back the next day and all this kind of thing. There's more to life than that. And this ultimatum is a major part of it. So Gordy is now praying earnestly for the salvation of uh, his wife, my sister, uh, and his three children, and, and many others. Who is on your prayer list? Maybe your application from this text uh, is to start or restart, I know how it goes, um, a prayer list. Uh, what does Steve call it? The seven for heaven? Yeah. Restart the seven for heaven list. So there will always be popularity contest, and Jesus may seem unpopular, but he's in a different class. He's not trying to compete. He is the only Savior. John here, he, he didn't go ten rounds with Jesus. He surrendered outright. John shrinks himself in order to magnify the Lord Jesus. And so popularity, um, we have to deal with it. It's a temptation that, that spoils ministry. It spoils life generally. But the ultimatum for us each is, is not popularity. The ultimatum is believing Jesus who came from heaven unto eternal life. The end. Let's pray. Our Father, um, we pray now even for Gordy. Um, thankful for his example, for his salvation. Pray for his marriage, that you'd work a miracle and restore that. It reminds us of other marriages that we know about that need the same. We pray for the lost generally, upon whom the wrath of God abides. We pray for each of us in our own lives and our ministries. We're all in ministry. That we could play the role of the best man. We don't have to be in the limelight all the time. That we could just rejoice in seeing Jesus have that limelight. Pointing to him. May we master the second fiddle. Loving to be, the, as David said, a doorkeeper in the house of my God, rather than feasting in the tents of wickedness. So, Father, help us with these things. We want Jesus to be famous, but we are forgetful. Help us to remind each other, and even gathering as we do in this place, uh, remind us at least weekly about this ultimatum on, on people and from all that you have saved us from, that we're delivered from that wrath of God. What a blessing. So bless our day further as we go forth and enjoy our snacks, fellowship together, 
and start a new week. May it be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.